Hello and welcome to SidePodNet's Science of Sustainability series. I'm your host, Tom Edwick. Today's episode is the first of a special two-part podcast all about the sustainability of our food production systems. When it comes to food production, like with almost every other industry, sustainability is at the top of the agenda. However, a lot of the current traditional agricultural methods aren't hugely sustainable. Statistics show that 25% of greenhouse gases are caused by agriculture, and the global food system is the primary driver of biodiversity loss. Furthermore, intensive agriculture is contributing to deteriorating soil health, and this is why there's been such a big push to modernise our agricultural systems, with governments beginning to enforce regulations on farmers to encourage more sustainable practices. There's also an increasing number of people who are more conscious about the environmental impact of the foods they eat, which is driving the growth of meat alternatives and new forms of protein. So over these two episodes, we're going to delve into the sustainability of food production and explore some of the innovative ways that we're cutting the cost of food. In this first episode, we're going to be discussing the strategies currently employed to create more sustainable, but still tasty, foods. Joining me today are two of my Notch colleagues, Gabby Walker and Flo Sinkinson. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, To start, I thought it'd be great to explore current farming practices and their impact on the planet, as well as some of the history behind human agricultural development. Flo, you've been looking at how humans have used selective breeding and genetic engineering in our continued efforts to boost yields and maximize nutritional value. Could you take us through some of the history of these efforts? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, when we're talking about selective breeding, this isn't a new concept. Humans have been selectively breeding for decades. Selective breeding itself uh, became a scientific practice uh, during the second agricultural revolution in in England in the 16th century. Uh, After this, we see a massive uptake in selective breeding as a scientific practice. Um, So some examples of how selective breeding have actually affected our day-to-day lives. I wanted to take you through uh, sort of three very familial fruits and, and just how much they've really changed. So originally carrots were thought to have sort of a purpley or a white flesh, looking very different from that striking orange that I guess we're also familiar with today. Another one is watermelons. So originally, watermelons had a very sour taste with a sort of a green flesh. um, And it's actually taken roughly 5,000 years of human development to get those lovely pink watermelons that we see today. Another one that's worth mentioning is peaches. So we all love a peach, especially now it's summertime. But originally, peaches were actually a lot smaller and covered in sort of a hard, waxy skin. So you might wonder why exactly we're doing this, obviously to enhance flavour and taste, but also in some cases, selective breeding can really help add nutritional value to things. Now, as we move on into the 21st century, uh, we can actually use our equipment, our scientific knowledge to use selective breeding really to advantage us. An interesting fact that I learned recently was that when they first developed sort of artificial flavouring for like banana flavoured sweets, That was actually based on a very sort of early form of the banana. And that has that particular sort of cultivar, I suppose you could call it, has now gone extinct. So whenever you're eating something banana flavored, you're you're having a little slice of the past. Gabby, you've been looking into kind of the current approaches to land use and how these are driving things like climate change and biodiversity loss. Uh, Could you talk us through what you found? Yeah, I guess it kind of follows on from um, what Flo was saying about how agriculture has changed over recent uh, years. So farming has definitely become a lot more intensive um, over the 20th and into the 21st century. 
And this was mainly to increase yields and feed a growing population. And also more recently to try and lower prices and make food more affordable for everyone. And this has required lots of different measures, including the use of lots of fertilizers and pesticides um, and also heavy machinery for actually managing the crops. Uh, also resulting in um, much more kind of intensive farming and being more likely to have things like monocultures where you just have one type of crop. So these practices, whilst they have led to food being more widely available and higher yields for farmers, um, they've also led to some kind of negative impacts. So it can lead to things like unhealthy soils and soil erosion, um, less resilient crops due to reduced genetic diversity, um, reduced carbon sequestration abilities, and also increased vulnerability to extreme weather events um, like droughts or floods. And in addition to this, we've now reached a point where a lot of the greenhouse gases that are generated come from irresponsible usage of farming land. And the um, OECD has actually found that uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the land use sector are really significant and they account for up to 25% of anthropogenic carbon emissions. So that kind of shows the significant impact that agriculture has um, on the environment. And intensive farming is like a really strong contributor to this. Um, it also has pretty devastating effects on biodiversity. So agriculture and um, the global food system is the primary contributor to biodiversity loss around the world. And biodiversity is important in all environments. So not just natural ones, but also human managed environments uh, like farms, um, because it supports vital processes like water recycling, soil retention, uh, pollination and also um, climate regulation. So biodiversity is something that really does need to be considered um, in agriculture and land use. And another problem at the moment is that farmers are tending to focus on single crops or specialised varieties, um, which can result in very homogenous landscapes, which also have reduced biodiversity um, and therefore limited capacity to adapt to any changing conditions. And obviously with climate change, we do have a lot of changing conditions. So this all kind of has a knock-on impact on food security as well as biodiversity. So um, basically by kind of tackling or adapting the way that we produce food, there's a lot of potential to um, not only address biodiversity declines, but also mitigate climate change whilst kind of feeding the growing population. So they are definitely very linked together and it might be possible to kind of tackle both at the same time. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for such a, a comprehensive overview. And I think uh, everything that you've covered there leads really nicely into our next section, um, which is all about the methods that we're currently using to try and boost the sustainability of our food production. Um, and a sort of example that I wanted to talk about and uh, is probably one that a lot of our listeners are really familiar with um, is plant-based meats and kind of other protein alternatives. Obviously, in recent years, products from companies such as Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat have cropped up uh, both in supermarkets and restaurants. Um, and the market for other vegan and vegetarian alternatives is kind of continuing to grow. Um, but it's actually, it's interesting to note that there's been meat alternatives for a very long time with kind of similar nutritional profiles. Um, and as vegetarianism and meat-reduced diets have grown in popularity, so too have these foods. Uh, for example, tofu, that's really popular, um, and that's been around for more than 2,000 years. 
and seitan, which is kind of a, a gluten-based product, has records that go all the way back to the sixth century uh, BC. So you know, it's something that's that's been around for a long time, but obviously, uh, recent innovations are kind of leading more in the direction of products that are trying to kind of mimic and uh, imitate actual already existing meat products. And, you know, anyone who's tried these can vouch for kind of how disconcertingly close they are to the real thing. Um, Gabby and Flo, I don't know if either of you have had sort of any experiences with plant-based meat that has kind of felt very uncannily similar to the real thing. Yeah, I can definitely vouch for that. I have been in a restaurant and ordered a Beyond Burger and had it come and then from like the visuals and the taste, everything about it had to actually confirm that this is not just a beef burger. Yeah. Flo, do you have any experiences with kind of plant-based meats or meat alternatives? Do you have like a favorite? Uh, well, see, I actually did a brief stint working in a vegan burger van at a festival and they had these like little tiny chicken nuggets. And I was so convinced that they were chicken like the first day. And I was like, felt really guilty like I'm giving out these this chicken to vegans that by the second day I actually had to go and check the box to like make sure they hadn't sent us chicken by mistake they're getting really sophisticated now these meat alternatives <laughs> yeah I think uh it's really interesting as well because they're kind of they're targeting uh, a section of the population who are maybe looking to reduce the kind of carbon uh sort of the greenhouse gas emissions uh, that surrounds their food or trying to be a little bit more sustainable, um, but who also kind of, you know, still want to enjoy meat really. So, um, and I think kind of the growth of these markets kind of demonstrates uh, their importance in reducing the sort of environmentally damaging effects of food production. Um, and kind of the way that these plant-based meats and other alternatives are produced is actually really interesting. Um, so I just wanted to take you through them quickly. So when it comes to plant-based meats, um, they're obviously trying to imitate animal meat. And animal meat is mostly muscle tissue consisting of proteins, fats, vitamins, minerals, and water. Um, and though, of course, plants don't have muscles, they do actually contain each one of those constituent parts. And the companies who are kind of innovating in this space have basically taken advantage of this and are trying to, I guess, build new meats from the ground up. Um, and so obviously the first step is uh, actually growing the necessary crops. Um, and these are often soybeans, which is used in tofu, um, but also used in Beyond Meats uh, products. Um, and wheat, as I mentioned before, gluten is used uh, to make seitan. Um, and then companies like Impossible Foods use peas and rice protein uh, involved um, in making their products as well. And then these are basically combined with a whole host of other ingredients that help to kind of mimic the textures and flavors of meat, as well as binders uh, that keep the protein together or certain oils to kind of help them sizzle like meat on the grill. Because um, obviously our food is such a, a sensory experience that they're really trying to emulate the whole experience of cooking actual meat. One interesting example of this uh, is comes from Impossible Foods. So they've made the Impossible Burger. And this contains a molecule called heme, um, which they've derived from plants. However, you can actually find this molecule in every living plant and animal. Um, and it kind of gives meat its meaty taste, if you will. Um, it kind of tastes a little bit like blood. Um, as another example, Beyond Meat products use things like beet juice and apple extracts to deliver those meaty flavors and colors. Um, and, you know, when they're developing their final products, they're sort of painstakingly tested to really try and 
get the sort of texture, mouthfeel, and most importantly, flavor of meat actually down. Um, and, you know, these products have seen huge developments in recent years um, and have led to a whole host of innovations. Uh, one of these examples um, is the growth of alternative meats produced via microbial fermentation. Um, now, this is a process we're probably all really familiar with. You know, um, it's the process behind some of our favorite foods and drinks, such as bread, cheese, yogurt, beer, wine. And uh, while natural fermentation produces byproducts like alcohol, uh, found in beer and wine or the carbon dioxide for rising bread. Scientists are now using genetically engineered microbes to produce sort of plant and animal pro uh, proteins. Um, so I mentioned uh, the heme molecule before the impossible food use in their products. Um, they actually used to extract this from soybean root nodules, um, but now they've basically taken the gene responsible for the production in soybean and they've inserted it into a genetically engineered yeast. And so they kind of, you know, basically produce this molecule in huge bioreactors, um, kind of industrial scale bacterial fermentation. Um, and there's other companies who are doing really interesting things, trying to grow kind of egg whites and other animal proteins in the lab. And, you know, with this continued innovation, it's an area that really has a lot of research going into it and could hold the key to the kind of some of the, the climate goals that we have. Um, there was a report from July this year, which found the plant-based meats are by far the best climate investment. Um, and kind of particularly uh, in terms of like monetary value, uh, the report found that for each dollar investment in improving and scaling up the production of meat and dairy alternatives resulted in three times more greenhouse gas reductions compared with investment in green cement technology seven times more than green buildings and 11 times more than zero emission cars. So uh, clearly these innovations are going to be massively important going forwards. Flo, you did some digging into kind of selective breeding and how this has driven uh, the sustainability of food when it comes to climate change and nutrition and biodiversity. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what you found. Yeah, of course. So selective breeding uh, has been uptaking uh, in this century to provide some really key advantages. Um, so the first one is increasing vitamin con concentration. And it's not something we may initially think about when it comes to selective breeding. Uh, but selective breeding can actually allow us to get the maximum vitamin concentration in those everyday uh, fruit, fruit and veg, helping to, you know, help more of our po a healthy population. Um, selective breeding can also help us to maximise the use of arable land, especially in a small country like the UK where we don't have much land mass. Um, by really cleverly planning where we're uh, selectively breeding, we can make the absolute maximum use of our arable land. Um, so then we have to talk about greenhouse gases. So between 2000 and um, 2020, um, 4 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases have been avoided being produced within the EU, uh, just purely through really efficient selective breeding programmes. And biodiversity may be not something we tend to think about when we talk about selective breeding, but actually plant breeding in the EU generates a largely positive biodiversity effect. So without plant breeding in the EU uh, in the last 20 years, global biodiversity equivalent found in about 8.3 million hectares of rainforest and savannas in Brazil would have been lost in 2020, in addition to what's already disappeared. And finally, it's not necessarily to do with food, but crops aren't just used for eating. 
uh, as we're moving towards a more sustainable future, biofuels and the chemical industry, uh, especially in producing fibres like cotton, uh, are really going to be using selective breeding to meet a growing demand. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Flo. Um, as well as the developments in the crops that we grow, how we grow them has also been kind of hugely important. Gabby, you did some research into some of the farming practices that are being adopted and how they're being used to boost sustainability. Yes, I did. So um, as we've kind of discussed, there's a lot of uh, impact from agriculture um, in terms of the environment globally. Um, but even in the UK, about 75% of the UK land is farmed. So making sure that this is done in a responsible and sustainable way um, is vital to the health of our planet. So there are a few ways that um, we grow our food. So one of these is extensive farming. So this is kind of as an alternative to intensive farming. So extensive farming uses less fertilizer and less pesticides and also has much less reliance on heavy machinery. Um, and it tends to be useful in areas that have uh, kind of low productivity um, where there are maybe large areas of land um, and kind of putting in minimal labor into these areas rather than trying to intensify it is actually better for preserving the kind of existing environment in these locations and the biodiversity that they already have, um, whilst kind of maximizing efficiency in terms of the output that you get. So that's beneficial for still kind of maintaining food production, um, but without needing some of the high intensity things that can lead to the negative effects that we've discussed earlier. Um, another approach is regenerative agriculture. So this is a method of farming that aims to improve the resources that it uses rather than destroying or degrading them. So there's a big focus on preserving soil health, um, careful and considered use of fertilizers and chemicals um, and more careful water management. Uh, it can also involve measures like rotating um, the crops that are grown each year, which can help to manage maximize biodiversity and improve the nutrients in the soil as well as encouraging pollinators um, and species that are sort of a natural pest control um, and this approach can kind of help to strengthen and restore uh, ecosystems and biodiversity in the area which can then help to mitigate some of the effects um, of more frequent extreme weather events that are caused by climate change so it can make these um, bits of agricultural land more resilient to droughts or floods um, helping to ensure food security and maintain them as long-term sustainable areas of land um, and it can also help improve carbon sequestration so kind of tackling some of the greenhouse gas emission problems that are associated with intensive agriculture um, and to support practices like this, lots of agricultural or regulatory organizations um, are thinking about or are in the process of offering kind of incentive systems um, to farmers and um, land use managers in the areas. So um, as well as kind of promoting education, um, it's like providing funding that's going to encourage these people to make decisions that are more sustainable. And one way they're doing this is through an ecosystem services approach. So I think this is quite an interesting way of thinking about um, land and the way we use it. It's basically 
kind of assessing and assigning um, a monetary value to the benefits that the ecosystem provides in any environment. Um, so this is things like we've talked about um, kind of water management, uh, mitigating the impacts of weather events, um, soil structure and the, the pollinators it can provide, which are obviously all really key for how our world functions. Um, the kind of things that we maybe tend to take advantage of um, coming from environments. So actually assigning uh, value to these um, can help people to make decisions and prioritize these and help people to know where funding needs to go um, to make the right decisions to protect the environment better. So there's quite a few ways there that we can make agriculture more sustainable and more considered and kind of ultimately help shift the way we produce food to something that is beneficial rather than destructive. Yeah, and I think that what you've said there really kind of underscores the importance of farmers and sort of landowners being involved in these policies and these conversations, because, you know, you mentioned there that 75% of the UK is currently, you know, farmed, um, which is actually a way higher proportion than I even realized. But, you know, if we really want to preserve biodiversity and sort of maintain these ecosystem services that you mentioned, working with farmers is going to be, you know, probably the, the best way that we can do that and will have such a huge impact. Yeah, exactly. And when it's, you know, it's people's livelihoods and businesses, they want to do things that will benefit them as well. So I think it's a case of making it the, the easy and the most beneficial and most obvious choice for um, landowners to use their land in a sustainable way while, rather than the way that is maybe would produce the highest yields. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Gabby. You know, people often will do things that are in their best interests. And, you know, so consumers can't be expected to sacrifice uh, taste for sustainability. And, you know, it's really important to have affordable, sustainable options that are still appealing. In a similar vein, our current food production practices aren't all sustainable and are contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, loss of biodiversity and environmental degradation. And, you know, this ultimately makes farms more vulnerable to climate change. So if we if we want our farmers and our landowners to kind of manage the land in a way that works for everyone, we, we really need to incentivize them properly and, you know, make sure that it's a an option that provides them with uh, a livelihood and financial stability. So as we've discussed in this episode, there are many food sustainability solutions that are already being implemented at different scales. In the next episode, we're going to be exploring some of the exciting developments and future technologies that could hold the key to unlocking a sustainable food future. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But for now, huge thanks to Gabby and Flo for joining me to discuss this important topic and a massive thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to head on over to our Twitter at SciPodNet and let us know if you learned anything new about food production and how it works. And also remember to give us a follow if you want to stay in the loop and be the first to hear about new podcasts. Thanks for listening.